Welcome to edition two of the eTalking podcast, the show that discusses the parts of Formula E that others cannot reach. Today, getting cranky. Was the Sanya E Prix the first less than exciting race of the season, or have we all just become used to Jason Statham levels of action at all times? Nissan take a step forward, Oliver Rowland challenging for a win until the end, and Sebastian Buemi having a very Buemi sort of race. But what are the secrets behind their power unit? Sanya be a bit tidier. Formula E comes to a new venue and Nelson Piquet does some digging behind the beach. Is it naive to expect more change? Cheap and quick versus hot out of the F1 frying pan. Who is the best value driver in Formula E and are teams changing their hiring strategy? Tired of winning? The rubber Formula E uses is actually a bit special. We dig in with a 50p piece. And finally, Andre the Giant versus Macho Man Randy Sam Bird. We'll discuss the drumming up of driver rivalries by Formula E and whether it's the wheeled version of the UFC, WWE or something else altogether. Okay, well, um, two guests in the studio today um, and they are uh, Peter Greaves and Hazel Southwell uh, for the first time. So welcome back, Peter, and welcome, Hazel. Hello. Hello. Hi. Right. So um, let's get cracking, shall we? Um, I think everyone saw the race at Sanya. So uh, what, what did you think? It was, a, from my point of view, it was a bit more of an F1 style race in that not everything happened um, that was stomach churning all at once, all the time. It was... Um, it, it, it certainly didn't, didn't trigger any elements of my anxiety. And I kind of... I kind of felt, yeah, this is something I could feasibly relax to at times. Um, what was that your feeling? And is this the fir- was this the first kind of semi-boring race, or are we just overreacting based on the races that we've had previously? Uh, feel free, whoever wants to chip in. Uh, so I think actually that there wasn't a lack of action, but there was a lack of video sight of the action. Um, which is a, a very unusual situation for Formula and not not how the broadcast generally works. A lot of things happened, but you didn't see them happening. So almost all the retirements you didn't really see, or they had to dig out a replay. Um, I'm not really sure why. I don't know if maybe it was part of the... Um, uh, just because there was that long period with the bridge, whether that made it more challenging to film, or um, if it was just... There was some kind of like on-site logistical issue with filming. I I, I don't know what it would be, um, or maybe I mean I don't know if there's just like quite high winds in Sanya, so they can use the the sort of I mean, but the, then there is in Punta del Este and they cope there. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm not sure what it was. I I don't actually think because when you think about it, there were like nine retirements. Uh, there was a lot of overtaking. There were some really pretty major fights. Um, uh, you know, even uh, Roland, uh, e- even the top three. So Vern got Roland fairly early. Um, but because of the red flags, because of the full course yellows, Roland was able to reel him back in again and again. Um, and although Roland is less experienced in Formula E than Jeff is, it's still, you know, there, there is a competitive fight between the two cars there. De Costa wasn't far off Roland, you know. Um, I, I don't think it was short on action. I think unusually we were short on visuals of the action because I, I actually thought it was just me because I wasn't there. But then you fundamentally see 
the same thing in the media center as you do on the world feed so yeah i'm i'm not i'm not quite sure what it was and and like it's very unusual for formula e to have that problem yeah i mean um, so with with formula 1 the problem we used to have before farm took a proper fom took a proper charge of things was that the domestic tv directors would have control of the cameras most of the time so mm. if they wanted to focus on senna running away rather than the battle for sixth or something then they would do but with formula e all the cameras are controlled by formula e aren't they uh yeah they are so formula e does its own broadcast and i mean to be honest they are absolutely incredible most of the time um so i haven't seen a badly filmed race maybe putrajaya was not ideal but that was a long time ago as well um or Bassey actually always looked quite crap but there was sort of a limit to what you could do about Bassey, um <laughs> just because there's like trees in the way all over the place uh and it was a like very tight and not particularly great circuit um but uh, yeah, I mean, given that they rock up to, so normally with like Formula One, um, with a lot of series that use uh, Grand Prix circuits, there's like established camera points and the circuit doesn't change. Whereas when it's a brand new circuit, um, so somewhere like Sanya or like Rome last year, um, then you've got to do a complete setup from nothing. Um uh, and like usually I think they do it really well so I thought they did a really good job in particularly Adiria this year mm. um, which was obviously brand new circuit and um, all kinds of logistical things to get around because it's on like a, a hill um, or you know street circuits are quite difficult to film because obviously they're overshadowed by buildings there's not uh, thousands of vantage points and um, the streets aren't built to have like a vista view in the same way that like parts of say Spa are mm. um, or whatever. So like normally uh, I, I think they do an absolutely incredible job because you wouldn't know that it's not, that it's something that has to be done very fast and yeah. that they really get almost no opportunity to test it whatsoever. Whereas, I mean, Shakedown, the first few minutes of Shakedown are basically, that's that's why Shakedown isn't like immediately televised, but that's them setting up the cameras. They get like seven minutes of Shakedown. Um, so, yeah, I, I think they do a mind-boggling job usually, but somehow it was really off at this this race. So, like, I, I hate saying this, but I couldn't tell when they came off full-course yellow. Well, yeah, um... I, I mean, there, there were certainly some, some challenges that you could see uh, on the screen that you didn't normally see. I mean, I think that's the uh, that's the marvel of Formula E and how it's organised, that you don't normally see the strings attached. Uh, Peter, I'm, I'm wondering if part of the problem here is that um, street circuits, you know, in beautiful places like Sanya apparently is, and, and like Hong Kong undoubtedly is, for example, you know, but we, we don't see that much of the scenery from the track because of these walls. Um, do, do you think maybe the solution is eventually, and I hate to sound like Donald Trump here, to develop a big, beautiful wall that uh, actually you can see through and see the city from? Oh, well, that is an interesting question. Um, you, you have a point because, of course, at the start of Formula One and the start of Formula E as well, I noticed it today, they do do a flyover, show a bit of a general you know, vibe of the, of the city and, and all that sort of stuff. So... 
I, I didn't feel too hard done by, but I do agree that I suppose once you're within the track limits, um, you you don't see a great deal of, of the external visual. And one of the things I did pick up on today, actually, was that I thought with the once I saw the track layout uh, drawn out with those two large sort of semi straights, um, they I thought that it was going to be far uh, more like Baku, say for example, where you can sit, where they film them coming down the long straight, and there'd be quite a drama into the breaking zone or something like that. I, d- I don't recall seeing anything like that particularly. Um, but again, you know, I, I don't want to be massively critical because, like you say, they bring they put these things up at incredibly short notice, get them all in, put a race circuit in a in a city in a functioning city, and then and then have to get out again. So maybe there's some <coughs> lessons they might learn. Um, here because yeah it did seem I agree there were some there were quite a few battles quite a lot of banging again which we may discuss uh, later on or not Um, there was Degrassi missing the activation zone which we did see to be fair you know um, and a few other a few other incidents and close calls I didn't feel too hard done by for action I think the race maybe was slightly just a a tiny anti-climax just because of the sheer thrill that we've had over say the last three or four races where it seems to have just we seem to run out of superlatives for the amount of things that have happened and i did think it was going to crash back down to earth at some point um but yeah having said that it wasn't uh it wasn't a bad race i think it was just one of those maybe um that was affected by coverage and being slightly less action-packed as the ones that came before yeah, always happy to talk about banging, by the way. Uh, talking of which, we will, we will be talking about Eduardo, Eduardo Mortara later on. Um, but, uh, yeah, so <laughs> I, I think maybe um, my expectations of the race were that uh, um, b- because I, I just kind of become used to that non-stop action um, that... That, that we that we would see that all the time but the, but the, the explanation maybe that uh, hazel you've given g- gives me a better idea of why that why that wasn't so wasn't so and i'm sure that'll be corrected for next season when they come back there um moving on then nissan has a much improved race this time and uh oliver roland um was on pole for the first time i think in his formula e career uh, and uh, did a fantastic job was challenging for the lead right until the end that there was that question over whether he would uh, actually need to and whether John Eric Verne would get the penalty or not. But uh, in the end, well-deserved second place. Uh, could have been a win. And Sebastian Buemi could have been in the conversation if not for his general Buemi-ness in uh, this season. Um, so I guess um, we, we come back really to um, the um, possibly overhyped issue of Nissan's power unit, which um, seems a bit revolutionary. So uh, Sam Smith and a few other journalists did some digging into it. Um, mm. What what can we find out, Hazel, about what's different about Nissan's power unit compared to the others on the grid? Um, so I actually asked uh, the the head of the, the sort of Nissan side of Nissan Edam's uh, visit testing, because um, Nissan are using a very or a setup that has been tried and failed repeatedly. So a lot, quite a few teams um, tried to, uh, when Formula E first opened, uh, construction of the powertrain, because in the first season, everyone had a generic powertrain. Uh, but then in the second season, you, you could construct your own. Um, quite a few teams experimented with um, having two motor generator units. Now, 
uh, that's not the same as as in a Formula One car having the MG UK and the MG UH. It's having two basically MG UK. Um, so all um, the the motor generator unit in the in a Formula E car is a whole powertrain. Um, so it's the regeneration system, and it's the system that takes energy from the battery and pushes it into the rear axle to power the car. Um, so it's not the gearbox, but it's basically everything else uh, about um, uh, the the actual drive of the car. Uh, and yeah, a, f- a few teams have tried having two motor generator units. In theory, it would be ideal uh, because you could it, you you can sort of get more uh, dispersed power. You can probably make them a little bit more efficient. Um, but every time it ended up overweight. So um, DS Virgin had one in season two, um, and it, their car was massively overweight because of the the obviously two MGU uh, weigh more than a single one. Um, Neo or, or Nextev um, uh, that became Neo tried uh, right until the end of last season. It never was great shakes. Um, like it, it, they just couldn't they could never make up for the weight and the complexity of them uh compared to simply getting an efficient powerful single mgu now nissan uh are not new to making electric vehicles uh, nissan make the best-selling electric vehicle in the entire world the leaf um and they are a company who really know their way around evs um so it isn't to me an enormous surprise that they have managed to make this work where other manufacturers have failed um and that they were daring enough to do it what they're doing is not cheating um so the i've i've got the um technical regulations up because i'm a a cool and fun person um and you can have two mgus there's no issue with that um the mgu or each mgu has to operate together so you can't have them um delivering different power loads or or, or um uh say so you can't have one regenerating whilst the other is forcing power into the wheel aside from the fact that that would be a really great way to spin the car incredibly fast um but yeah so they 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 have to work in in absolute synchronicity uh that's a difficult word to say if you've been up all night um but yeah they're they're not there's nothing illegal or against the technical regulations to what nissan are doing it's something that other teams have really tried to do and they couldn't do it um there's I, the the sort of like mild controversy is that people think they might be using them to operate separately in order to give one of the basically get get the MGU to spin itself up as an additional flywheel energy store. 
Do you think I can ask a quick question at this point? Yeah, I'm, of course. I'm not a particularly technical. I've, I've been into motor racing for pretty much my entire life yeah. since I was about eight or nine. But it's uh, but I've I've always I'm more of a software guy, which means I probably should show more of an interest in that side of Formula E for sure. Um, but I'm not very good with in terms of the actual uh, technology under the hood, as it were. Um, with the Nissan, with this sort of with the FIA wanting to look into what Nissan mm. are doing, do you think it is for that reason that you were saying uh, where maybe they've succeeded where others have failed and they want to look at it in the name of progress of the series? Or do you think they're looking at it because of Nissan's sort of recent improvement? I noticed Roland's obviously had a couple of great starts. He's been on pole position as well now. Um, do you think it's it's a matter of their circumstances or do you think it is just a general query into their tech? Or number number three, or number three, is it uh, because the FIA likes to ban things that do well? Um, So I actually think it's none of those. I think it's option four, which is the other teams have got very sort of like antsy about it. Um, And they want clarity on it. Now, I think it's, well, I don't know. So Nissan are the only team, uh, the only manufacturer running two two motors, um, unless whatever atrocity is in the back of the dragon does, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't. <laughs> um, I certainly, I, I, can't, I can't pretend that I've looked into what they're doing this season. Um, probably mounting it backwards again. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I think um, the, the prompt for the FIA to clarify comes entirely from other teams. Um, this is sort of coming later in the season, um it's completely true so nissan haven't been very fast and if if nissan were fast sebastian buemi would be winning um so if you came into formula e in season four then you don't remember this but sebastian buemi is the most successful formula e driver ever and he still is even though he hasn't won for a season and a half um like he's just absolutely unstoppable, especially in season two and three. It, it was unbelievable how fast he was. Um, he did have a very good car, but uh, so you know, they weren't Renault were ahead in season two and they were at the front in season three, but they weren't, it wasn't like the difference between like Mercedes and everyone else in 2014 or something. Uh, We should probably Um, explain just to not be too inside baseball for those who are new to Formula E, Renault is part of the Renault Nissan group and uh, they switched the affiliation to Nissan this season. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so the team that are now Nissan used to be Renault. Um, And yeah, I think, uh, you know, it, it said, Definitely took a confidence hit last season because he couldn't get the car to do what he wanted. Um, and he even said that he wasn't fast enough. Um, and that it wasn't exclusively the car because you could see Jeff was winning in the, with the same powertrain. Um, but I, I, if, if Nissan had a magically incredible car and were magically, incredibly able to set things up perfect for every race, then... Sebastian would be leading the championship. Um, I, I, I don't think you can get away from that. Um, I, I mean, so people, people talk about. The I, I do. I do think this is a little bit weird, but yeah, I mean, 
they, they have made something work where nobody else has and the other teams are mega antsy about it so uh, in Hong Kong there was this like massive air of like paranoia all around the paddock everyone was convinced um, that every other manufacturer had something that they shouldn't so like there were also all kinds of questions about Audi um, and whether you could see something on the floor of the cars whether you could see an additional thing in the back of the Nissan um, uh, this flywheel um, Lucas was absolutely adamant that he could uh, during free practice um, and during shakedown but I, mm, I the cars are homologated they're so they've been looked at. Um, they've been looked at repeatedly. They're homologated at the start of the season or pre-season. So homologation is done uh, before pre-season testing, just to sort of like clear that nobody's got like a rocket in the car. Um, and then it's done after pre-season testing to completely lock down um, everything that's in the car and you can't make significant significant changes to it after that so some things like the differential are set from that point onwards um and uh you know they get scrutineered every race so i just i i think this is a bit of like everyone's just having like a big snit about i mean there's lots of manufacturers in the series now and so you are getting situations that you haven't seen before where all of the manufacturers get like their knickers in a twist about some other manufacturer possibly doing something else and it gets into a headline because it's at, it's like teams go to the FIA about Nissan cheating mm. and it's like no they're just asking what's going on because they like I totally get why and it's part of the game and it's part of the sport but like they so they have to ask about it but that doesn't mean it's a thing. Just to ask one clarifying, qu- one clarifying question on that as well on, on yeah. the tech side um Am I right or am I completely wrong, because I'm not tech either, in saying that uh, a Tesla has four MGUs, one driving each wheel, or is that is that off the ball? Uh, I think some of them do. Hmm. Um, but certainly, would... so, like, ro- Robocar does. Um, that, that would be illegal in Formula E. Yeah, you can only have up to a maximum of two, and they have to only go to the rear axle. Okay. Um, sorry to interrupt a minute ago. They call it overzealous host syndrome. Um, I just had a question related to an article you wrote last season entitled "What the hell has happened to Sebastian Buemi for Drive Tribe?" And oh, yeah. um, I, I really liked it, but it it, it referenced the uh, famous scene from the movie uh, in season three where Buemi decided to confront half the grid and uh, shout, "Did you hit me?" repeatedly at Daniel Apt. Um, or I think it was you did hit me, um, and yeah. it, it was it was it was seen at the time as part of a general sort of existential crisis he seems to be having with not being the top dog. But I'm wondering, I mean, because I've been watching NASCAR videos on YouTube, and and one thing that is constant is that when a team uh, falls into a bit of a rough patch, the driver generally does with with his own um, abilities and skills as well. Are we seeing partly Buemi deteriorate as a driver based on the fact that Roland's been the one picking up the good pieces when they've happened? No, I don't think so. I mean, Seb just won the 24 hours uh, demand like last year. You know, he's winning consistently in Toyota. I don't I don't think his brain is falling apart um, despite substantial exposure to Fernando Alonso. Um, <laughs> I, 
I think, um, you know, Sebastian's very realistic about the situation that needs to be rebuilt at Nissan and the fact that they started the season on a real back foot. They lost all the pre-season testing, basically. Sebastian was running two cars um, and working his absolute arse off uh, after Alexander Albon left um, for Toro Rosso at the start of the week of pre-season testing, which really, really screwed Nissan. Um Pre-season testing is is your final chance to set up the car. So so Sebastian did it um, for both of them, um, not even knowing who was going to drive the second one. Um, and yeah, I think also that you know Nissan Nissan are new to Formula E. Nissan are not new to electric vehicles, but being able to make a really good electric vehicle doesn't mean you can automatically play a really good game of Formula E, the sport, especially given it's just uh, changed formats very substantially. Um, so I, d- I don't think Seb's sort of like off the ball or having a meltdown. Um, the the famous Montréal uh, scene is... Uh, I, I really felt for him because I also occasionally have like terrible temper fares and I think anyone who has ever had a bit of a meltdown, uh, especially in public, probably... Um, uh, winced in sympathy with him um like he was being awful but also uh the reason that nobody came and retrieved him and sort of put a stop to it was because nico pross car was on fire in the renault edem's garage <laughs> okay. so um like normally if a driver starts going or or normally he would have been grabbed the second he got out of the car by a pr and sort of like walked away and given a you know a, a cup of juice and told to sit down um and uh you know have a big rant at the back of the garage but yeah it was a very difficult situation for him but i, I don't i mean he came to the after party yeah you know he and uh said like he's he's quite um he's he's pretty mentally resilient um he had put up with lucas ribbing him for the entire season and lucas is like a master of like getting inside other people's heads and just, like, worrying at them. Well, um, he seems to be a bit of a Twitter troll right now, yes. Oh, yeah, I mean, he he, he loves the bounce. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I don't think Seb is necessarily sort of, like, falling apart. Um, and I think, certainly, you know, he's he's got his head in it. Um, I just think that Nissan are a new team. <laughs> basically and also uh, you know last year the, there were lots and lots of complications with Edams so Edams as a team had quite a substantial wobble um, because Jean-Paul Drio was uh, away for almost the whole season um, he only came back in Paris so over two-thirds of the season uh, he was away because he was really unwell um, so I think that that left them with a really difficult situation, especially after they'd set the car up wrong following pre-season testing. Yeah. Uh, um, Jean-Paul Trio, by the way, the uh, CEO of DAMS, ever, ever since they were called Trio Arnu Motorsports, which uh, um, is a... Is that fu- where it comes from? Apparently, apparently this, and I, I, I recoiled in amazement because I realised, hang on, that was Alain Prost's team last season because, of course, Arnu and Prost have had a long-running pitch battle for about 30 or 35 years now. But, uh, yeah, apparently so. Yeah. 
But here you go. Um, uh, yeah. I think the idea that these motors have a flywheel element is a little bit weird, to be honest. So the only reason that it would be advantageous, so a flywheel um, is a simple energy store. It's one of the earliest forms of um, electrical energy store. And it's basically, or or any form of energy store comes to that, um, you can make one yourself. So if you get a hairband or an elastic band, um, and uh, like wrap it around one end of your finger and then twist the other end until you've got uh, a load of um, uh, like little twists in, in the elastic and then let it go and you see it like unravel. That's fundamentally a very basic flywheel. Um, so, yeah, it's... It, it's something that works along those lines. Obviously, anything in a formerly it, Formula E MGU is going to be a lot fancier than that. I don't think they've gone down Claire's accessories and got a load of toggles, um, but it, it, it would be something along those lines. So something that's able to store a little bit extra energy in regen, I guess, um, or that that's able to use it very efficiently and as a process of um, discharging why that would be an advantage i really honestly do not know um because the battery is more than big enough for the racing you saw everyone was finishing with double figures of energy um today in sanya uh antonio finished with over 20 percent, i think which is bonkers um so yeah the the you it's not the same as in previous seasons being able to store a tiny little extra bit of energy would have been amazing a real advantage um but yeah i mean unless unless it just means it can be re-transmitted faster but then a flywheel is very slow compared to just um moving around and charging and discharging a battery um yeah, I, I I don't really get it. Um, I think it will be interesting what the FIA says. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I think basically everyone's just running around a bit paranoid at the moment. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and Nissan happened to be sort of caught in the crossfire. <laughs> and, and actually the flywheel was uh, attempted by Williams back in the early days of Kurs, I think in 2006 or something. Mm. 2007 um that they abandoned it i think because it cost too much uh and they they went for a for a more sort of typical curse system but um yeah so supposedly that was a money spinner for them for a few years they would sell the flywheel curse to uh commercial uh projects that wanted it uh but uh, yeah it's, it's interesting that the old-fashioned flywheel might have made a comeback um okay next topic um um, as as the Formula E teams and drivers went to Sanya and got settled into their hotels, uh, Nelson Piquet Jr., season one champion, uh, but I think winless since then, uh, decided to... 40 a... races without a win. Yeah, I mean, um, that's... Uh... Get, get getting getting on to uh, late period Richard Petty levels of uh, um, is is he ever going to come back? Um, but I mean, yeah, he he took a walk down to the beach and um, being the uh, environmental crusader that he apparently is, he uh, <laughs> t- he took a video and posted it on Twitter with uh, lots of WTFs about the amount of 
plastic that the authorities had seemingly taken from the beach and simply dumped behind it, uh, behind a grass, behind a grass border, a grass verge. So, I mean, quite apart from this being kind of corporate suicide on PK's behalf, I mean, it's kind of like if he went to Saudi Arabia and counted the number of women drivers on the main highway. Um, it, it it also, I don't know, it, it highlighted know, for me he... that, that there is still a major environmental problem, even though Envision Virgin Racing have launched their Get Plastics Off the Beach campaign, and even though Formula E, which is supposedly the world's cleanest form of motorsport, has gone to a Chinese beach resort. Um, are we expecting too much, Peter, that Formula E can make big changes in how countries and how people who live there view uh, the environment and how they care for it? Well, um, this is not just, by the way, it was great listening to some expert insider knowledge about what was going on with the powertrains there, because I had pretty much nothing to add to that conversation whatsoever. So it was, it was fantastic to hear that. So thank you both uh, for discussing that. No, um, Poppy, yeah. don't eat the crisps. Sorry, my cat <laughs> So are you telling me cats can't eat crisps? That's, that's just deep. Well, they can, surely, surely they can enjoy them as much as anybody else. Um, she does. She's a, she's a huge crisp fan. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so yes, I'll let you know if my, if my dog starts eating anything inappropriate in the vicinity of me, it's most likely to be my shoes or my slippers or something. Um, yeah, so I saw the video in question it sort of reminded me immediately of the video that was released last week by a certain jeremy clarkson as well where he was sat in a boat whinging about uh chinese plastics but the 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 thing the thing is on the formula e front i suppose it does look bad if you go to a place where they may appear to be covering up how much environmental damage they're causing or how much uh, litter or debris or pollution or whatever is in their area. Now, with China, of course, you're always going to get a sanitized version of the truth, or usually anyway. So the fact that uh, Pico was out there and, you know, like you say, taking a PR risk, is he really meant to be doing something like that in a place that Formula E is hosting a race? It looked to me, potentially, I think the, the video was maybe a little low quality, the version I saw, but or I don't know if my internet was going slow at the time, but it seemed almost like they'd combed the beach for plastic and instead of taking it away, they'd just chucked it into the dunes and so on behind uh, and on and next to the path. So really, it kind of, it was to clean the beach up, perhaps. Not that there's ever an excuse to, to leave that sort of mess around it must be pretty unpleasant especially if it's a, a place uh, like Sanya is is a you know a holiday resort so I can't imagine people really want to be trampling around in all of that but you know it was it's one of those things where I feel that it is an issue of course it's an issue Formula One should um oh nice Freudian slip Formula E should be should certainly be uh you know, speaking out against these things, encouraging people to f- go for greener forms of transport, for recycling, for all sorts of um, environmentally beneficial issues. Um, but likewise, I'm in this horrible position where I don't feel like I can sit in the Western world and criticise everything that's going on there. Uh, because I'm pretty sure that we've been guilty of plenty ourselves as well, that people aren't bothering to highlight on Twitter or or on uh, their, their stories. So I think I feel like Formula E should be responsible. It certainly should be showing 
um, that it is responsible in certainly in its message, uh, maybe in its advertising, in the charities it chooses to support and so on. But it is at slightly cross purposes, I feel, and I don't know, you know, I, I don't know how you guys feel about this and it might be a talking point, but it might be slightly at cross purposes with the FIA because the, the thing is the FIA tend to go towards progress. So as with Formula One we've seen before, as with Formula E we're seeing now, they will tend to go where the money is, the emerging markets, the uh, the, the, the countries that are resurgent in the world, they're sort of swaying towards those. Uh, and th- and a lot of those don't have perfect records in terms of things like human rights and how they're dealing with pollution and so on. Cough, cough, so, Bahrain, cough, cough. Yeah, so it's kind of, it's one of those situations where I feel like the FIA wants to go into emerging markets. Not all of the things that are going on there are totally above board and respectable, but they want to go to those markets nevertheless. And sort of formula but formula e also has a duty to say look we're racing with battery powered cars you you know you should be responsible too but it feels like it's slightly at cross purposes because um because a lot of these emerging countries maybe aren't dealing with their waste in a responsible manner hmm. uh um hey hazel any 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 thoughts on formula e's environmental um credentials and whether it's damaged by uh, by by this kind of thing and by this kind of video i mean firstly i used to live in the river i used to live on a boat in london and let me tell you there is a, a lot more trash in the average british river i don't i don't think we can put this on uh developing countries on kind of like uh countries outside western europe or the the northwestern world um, you know, basically everywhere is an absolute tip. Um, and there's also a huge amount of technology, especially in developing countries. Um, there's some uh, really good projects in Africa and India in particular, uh, or uh, across Africa and, and in India, um, where people are, are using particularly plastic waste in incredibly innovative ways uh, that um, we don't in um what you might call the the developed world the first world um simply because we can just throw it away and get more so i think uh yeah i think i think you have to divorce that from a lot of um a lot of talking about this especially because we actually send all our recycling to china to process um from western europe um does it damage environmental credentials to turn up somewhere like that? I don't think it does. Um, so if you take, for instance, the example of the upcoming Extreme E series, the point of that is to go and uh, do rally cross star racing um, in the most destroyed places on Earth. Um, the places that are most vulnerable, are most utterly screwed by climate change in order to showcase them um you know uh going to somewhere like saudi arabia um that's one of the countries that is most vulnerable to climate change and consistently scores uh lowest or second lowest on countries addressing climate change um so yeah it's it's somewhere that we should rock up we can't just go to places that that fundamentally already are on board um, you know, otherwise we just go to Oslo every week. 
but or or um, uh, Albania is is the cleanest energy country in the world. Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent clean energy. Um, so uh, most most of it's like hydrothermal and hydroelectric, but still, um, uh, no cold fire, uh, coal or gas fired. Um, but yeah, so if if we're going to the US, then uh we we can kind of go anywhere in in terms of like addressing it and bringing the fight of climate change and taking it to the places where you have to um actually take it on board um so yeah i i don't think it loses any environmental credibility um and i think realistically you know there there's horrible amounts of trash everywhere um yeah, PK found some on the the beach in Sanya. It's a resort. I, I mean, I don't actually think it had been moved off the beach. I think it's just people of malls and um, like collect up all their rubbish and like chuck it off the beach. So I'm I'm not sure it was sort of necessarily municipal. It just looked like loads of garbage that people had just started chucking there because they couldn't find another bin, um, or couldn't be bothered to find another bin. Um, yeah, that's a fair point. I, I just sort of, I saw the sheer amount of it and thought maybe yeah. this looks like a cleanup operation, but you, you may well be right. That that may be the attitude if it if it starts. I mean, just think uh, of any park yeah. being on a summer's day. Yep, absolutely. Mm. And in Sanyo, I would imagine it's summer most of the time, isn't it? Uh, yeah, basically. I mean, and, and it's a resort town, you know, it's, it's mostly visited by uh, wealthy Russians um, or by wealthy people from from across uh, China and um, there is a pretty high correlation to be between being too rich to care and um, wrecking things. Um, So, yeah, um, I I think it's important to show it. Um, I I hope that that it got cleared up and that that you know someone got the gloves out from Formula E that that maybe uh, people got a few bin bags and and cleared it. But um, realistically, it's a problem that's everywhere, and you you've got to go to the places where it's happening. Um, there's certainly really quite depressing amounts of trash in say Punta del Este, um, given it's a it's a very uh, exceptionally beautiful peninsula in the Atlantic um, on the on the coast of Uruguay but uh, for starters like trash just washes up on beaches because there's a lot of it in the ocean um, and also just people just seem to hate taking their stuff home from the beach um, so yeah people just sort of like bury it in the sand or chuck it against a wall or something um, yeah I'd I hope it got cleared up. Um, I hope, in general, that that people can address um, rubbish issues and and sort of like stop using bodies of water or areas near bodies of water as trash cans. But it, it, it is an unfortunately global trend. Hmm. Um, extreme is another topic altogether, and I feel like hmm. uh, we could fill an entire podcast investigating and looking into. Uh, 
you know the the reasons behind uh, that being a a good idea or not. Um, but uh, unfortunately, we don't have time for time for that. I, I I've got heaps of questions about that. Um, may, maybe if you ever got time to come back on, you can talk about Extreme E for a while, Hazel. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Cool. Um, I, I wanted to talk also about um, the increasing trend it seems to me of either formula e veterans uh, as in people who've been racing um every season since the start um such as degrassi bird um Buemi, ba- basically um and anyone but nelson pk jr um and also um people who are becoming specialists at streets like eduardo mortara who's won 10 times in macau and um was was also um, after Hong Kong in the conversation for the championship, as I wrote on my blog. I mean, um, P- Peter, let's start with you on this one. Um, do, do you think Formula E is moving towards being a specialist sport? And will this mean fewer drivers braving it out of F1 like Felipe Massa and then finding they struggle in a sport that's mostly full of um, hardcore EV drivers? This is quite a difficult one, and I'll be very interested uh, to hear in a minute what Hazel has to say about it because of her sort of involvement directly with the sport and the drivers, and she's probably far more knowledgeable than me on this subject. Uh, but from what I've seen personally, of naturally, some of these season drivers that we are talking about now, and I think all of the champions have been involved in Formula One at some point or another in their career. They have some degree of F1 experience. Uh, So I don't think necessarily the transition is the issue, but um, I do notice that obviously there was so much weight put behind Felipe Massa, Stoffel van Dorn, obviously he's racking up the the fan boost every race. There was a lot of weight put on them. Now, I don't want to trash talk anybody because there's various different reasons why people might be performing, might not be performing. Also, I don't know how easily drivable... Uh, or how much you have to alter your style from uh, from other formulas or other types of racing to Formula E, and that's that's something I'll be interested to hear about in a moment, I'm sure. But yeah, Verline seems to have adjusted, shall we say, uh, the best in my opinion, anyway. And but I'm not sure whether that's just sort of a youthful disregard for you know he's just going for it. And he and he just happens to be a talented individual, and he yeah. doesn't he doesn't particularly care what's come before. He's just he's just giving it a go. Um, and but I think I think he seems to be the one who's adjusted the best. But like I say, a lot of those other guys like PK Junior, Buemi, Degrassi, Verne, so on, have have had some degree of Formula One experience. So I don't think it's necessarily something that Formula One drivers should be. Uh, looking at avoiding, say, oh, no, I don't want to look embarrassed in Formula E, I just won't try it. I, I don't think that's the case. Um, but it's certainly, you know, the, the trend is far too obvious to ignore that the people who have been in it the longest seem to be excelling now the Gen 2 cars have come along. So it, so maybe there is a, there, maybe there is an argument for, the, you know, the the longer you're in it or the more experience you have of this type of racing, the more you'll excel at it. Yeah, and also, um, one thing that was mentioned during the commentary for Sanya was that uh, one of the German marks coming in next season, either Porsche or Mercedes, people think Porsche, is looking into Mitch Evans as, as the second driver, which would be fantastic because he's he's a driver who's excels in junior formulae, but uh, he's, he, he's, he's not a star name. He's, he's not someone who's... <laughs> 
come come straight out of F1 or, or sports cars or something. Um, and I mean, just the idea of someone who's been uh, really treading the boards in Formula E for such a long time being considered by one of the big marks because of his performances, I think is a great thing. But uh, yeah, Hazel, what are your thoughts? Um, I, I, I think the Evans Porsche thing is super weird. Um, I, th- I think it comes from the the uh, Mark Webber Porsche link because Mark Webber's his his mentor slash to some degree his manager. Hmm. Um, but as far as I know, he's I mean he's he's with a big manufacturer. Uh, he's earning enough that he's moved to Monaco. Um, I don't. I mean, it's just about... I mean, Porsche have drivers coming out their ears. I was going to say, Brendan Hartley's going to be disappointed if he's not picked, isn't he? Uh, yeah, I mean, I just... Uh, yeah, Porsche have... I, well, they've got their whole ex-LMP1 squad. They've got a huge number of GT drivers. I just I just can't see that they'd poach Evans. I, I'm not really sure where that one's coming from, and it's certainly not something I've heard. Okay, um, what about the general principle of people like Evans, Mortara and so on now hmm. seeming more appealing to some people than the big star names with less experience? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think for sure they should be. Um, so I think, uh, say, um, you can see it with Felipe Naza didn't have an amazing record in Formula 1. He wasn't bad, but the Sauber was, was uh, dreadful. Um, but he's gone on to be very successful in stock cars, in sports cars. Um, uh, he's he's really been um, extremely good in IMSA, uh, and he's a highly rated driver. Um, boot out Maximilian Gunter, who had geared his whole uh, campaign from the start of uh, last season onwards into moving into Formula E to becoming a Formula E specialist. Um, he absolutely binned off, you know, approaching F1 or approaching any other championships in order to, to get to Formula E. Um, spent the whole of last year in the Dragon Simulator, uh, came to every race, was very attentive, was very much like concentrating on learning Formula E above anything else. Um, and Gunter was getting better results. Like he, he wasn't lucky this year, but uh, and Naz's car is critically broken. Um, which is why uh, there was the accident with the, the Mahindras in Hong Kong, um, and then it didn't get further than a few hundred metres this race. But so, so you mean they haven't repaired it since Hong Kong? No, you can't. Um, okay, that's uh, you see again. I'm I'm used to F1 where you can take it back to the factory <laughs> and take it apart, but you can't do that here. No, uh, I mean aside from the fact it will have been in transit, so it won't it won't have gone back to the factory. Um, so cars will go back to the factory for the first time between this race and Rome, hmm. um, or for the, for, for the first time for a while. Um, but, uh, yeah, it won't have been in the factory, but also if you want to replace bits of a Formula E car, it has to be re-homologated. So you need to give, um, 30, uh, it's 30 to 60 days notice in order to book in an FIA homologation. So, uh, Degrassi last year had a, a absolutely woeful start to the season because he had a broken inverter, so his car fundamentally did not run, um, and uh, which is, which is obviously a bit crucial if you're trying to drive it. Um, 
so yeah he he had to wait for ages to get the the joker inverter put in um in theory you could take a grid penalty and just keep replacing it but you've still got to have it um re-homologated at some point um so yeah it's it it's just a function of the way that the championship works mm. um uh, in in Formula E, DHL move the cars and freight around sort of as a single unit. Um, it doesn't get freighted to and from manufacturers' factories. Right, right, and and um, obviously you know the the budgets are so much lower that manufacturers are not um, not even going to uh, are not anyway going to send a special shipment from or back to their factory. Just like you know, F one teams might mm. go to Australia or something. Um, yeah, I mean, I I don't I don't even know if Dragon have the parts to replace it. Yeah, I, I, actually, I I wonder if maybe the uh, I, I hate hate to say mismanagement, but it feels like that at Dragon um, in terms of their driver selection and well everything is is an aberration or if um, I mean what's what's going on there because like you say they've dropped a specialist driver who wants to be an EV specialist for someone who doesn't seem to know the machinery properly yet. Uh, no, and you know, NASA will probably get the hang of it, but uh, he had never driven a Formula E car before he got into uh, one at Mexico. Doesn't that make the uh, statement that Gunter said when he, oh, I, I knew I wasn't going to be racing the whole season and all this sort of uh, stuff? I mean, Do- that, that's just absolute. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely untrue. Yeah, and it it seemed so strange. And I mean, I'm not there with the drivers, and I, you know, I'm I'm not internal to this process. But when that statement came out, it just completely took me, like you know, it took me by surprise. I was thinking, there's no way that that is that is what's happened here. And unfortunately, I mean, I didn't really know uh, much about the mechanical issue that you're talking about, but mm. the uh, before this, before this podcast, I was making notes, and I did put not. I just put not been impressed with NASA. So I mean, it's you know that's that was my note on that front. So I think, but the, the fact is, yeah, it's interesting that that came up anyway because I was going to ask about that situation. It just fascinated me that uh, that Gunter was like, yeah, I, I knew I wasn't going to. I didn't have a full contract for the season and so on. And then NASA seems to have come in and and you know maybe not all his fault but seems to have come in and he doesn't seem like the right guy for that drive at the moment anyway no i mean i mean it's very difficult to uh the the dragon team have um a a difficult working environment um and uh you know i It, it's Jay. It's Jay Pansky. There's, there's, uh, there's probably a limit that. to what you can. You probably know more than you can say, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, well, I know. Look at what happened with Porsche at the start of last year. So Dragon had a partnership with Porsche. Nuriani was in the car in Hong Kong. Um, things went extremely south. Uh, it was an appalling weekend for them. Not not any of the mechanics or engineer or, or, or uh, team workers' fault. Um, or the drivers, um, their relationship broke down, um, and Porsche were out before Christmas. So, in fact, they were out before the end of the weekend. Um, and the reason that they were out, the reason that Jerome D'Ambrosio 
has departed for Mahindra finally when the seat became available. Um, the reason that they've had repeated uh, sort of odd goings on in it, it, it is Jay Pansky. Um, and well, that, that's, you know. that's weird. That's weird because obviously he comes. He's also from... why the team exists. So yeah, I, I mean, um, it's it's weird because I I wonder if his focus is too much on Rolling Stone magazine or if if it would be better if more of his focus was on Rolling Stone magazine because I mean he comes from this um, tremendous uh, if you like well is I mean obviously his father is the most successful indie car constructor ever and it's just it's just weird that um, none of that um, kind of excellence seems to have gone down the generations um I mean I don't I don't think it's sort of a you know, Formula E and IndyCar are very different beasts. Um, uh, he has quite a volatile personality. Anyone who's been in the, the paddock knows that. Uh, fair enough, so do I. Um, as anyone who's accidentally got the, the, uh, me in the wrong mood on Twitter will know. Um, and, yeah, I, I think... Uh, Whatever is going on at, at Dragon at the moment is quite... Uh, sorry, there's a nice cream truck going past my house. Um, um, well, no, it's fine. It's it's uh, proper electric power on that music, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, giving the whole thing a slightly surreal and sinister air. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, like I mean... Dream sequences from a 60s film now. Yes. Might I just uh, say, by the way, uh, it's, as it's now topical, um, I've noticed recently, I don't know whether it's a cover for another kind of organisation altogether, but I live in Liverpool and um, there is an ice cream van that has been going around in the winter months, eight o'clock at night, pitch black, playing the music full blast. So um, they, they must be yeah, doing a roaring trade. <laughs> yeah. So they, they must be doing a roaring trade to still be doing that. Or it's um, MI6 but- or something. But yeah, just uh, just to end on Dragon, like, mm. uh, yeah, I mean, the, the the whole of that is a very weird, disruptive mess. Um, I, I I think there's a slight tendency, uh, and and some other teams also have this idea. I don't want to single out Dragon, but they they are sort of the lowest budget team that somewhat try and do this. Um, they are also the lowest budget team on the grid full stop. Um, so you know. Um, uh, and one of the only ones without any kind of uh, large manufacturer behind them now. Hmm. Um, in fact, the only. Um, so, yeah, the, you know, the 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 fact that they're not in front of Audi is not that big a shock. Um, whether it would flatter them to become a customer team is is something that is quite interesting, and why they haven't, uh, I think, is is another sort of question. But I think, um, uh, uh, well, there's a slight tendency to assume that you can play a bit hard and fast with the rules, which you really can't in Formula E. There's, there's all kinds of like things like this homologation issue that you just can't get around. Um, yeah. uh, and it's very, very difficult. It's very challenging and it's very frustrating. Um, so I do understand, again, that everyone in the team is working very hard including Jay Pensky like you know regardless of of whether I think he and I would be best pals on a road trip um the whole team is working very hard to try and address the situation that it's in and uh, nobody is really miserable losing for several seasons in a row 
Um, nobody wants to do that. You can see how incredibly buoyed up the Andretti team is uh, by having got off the back um, because that really was grinding them down and it was grinding down Antonio and, you know, uh, everybody there. So, yeah, I, I think Dragon are in a difficult situation and some erratic decisions are being made, some very sudden decisions are being made, uh, especially about driver lineup um as as per NASA coming in. Um but just to come back to the specialist question. Hmm. Um so I, I think what makes a Formula E driver is a really interesting question. I sort of tried to look at it last year. Because if you look at somebody like Eduardo Mortara, um, although he's a very highly rated driver, although he's somebody who uh, Toto Wolf said if he couldn't get Bottas he was going to put him into the Mercedes F1 seat. Um, and Eduardo is very fast, he's very skilled, um, he's very beautiful, uh, like really disturbingly beautiful. Um, <laughs> regular humans shouldn't have to stand near him or really look at him. Um, but he, uh, he's, he's a really lovely guy as well and he's super easy to work with. You can see the team absolutely adore him. Um, but the the fact that he's really good at Formula E is sort of a surprise. Like, that comes out of nowhere. There's people with the same background as Eduardo who haven't really got it together in Formula E. There's uh, people like... So if you look at Robin Frines, who is a highly rated driver, uh, he wasn't in for season four after, after BMW came into Andretti um, and his Audi clash happened. But now he's back. I mean, people really, really rate Robin as as one of the best drivers in Formula E. He also comes from a GT background, same as um, Eduardo Mortara has been for years. Uh, but then you look at other people like like Mitch Evans, who came from junior single-seaters. GP2 car is absolutely nothing like a Formula E car whatsoever. Um, uh, but he, he got into it really quick. Um, and beat his teammate, uh, Adam Carroll, who, who actually, to be fair, had horrific luck. Um, but and, and the car was such a dog, it's really hard to say anyone beat anyone in that, that first Jaguar. Um, but, yeah, Adam Carroll came from a development background, came from working on uh, pushing race cars forward, and from a GT background in WEC. Um and then you look at, say, Luca Filippi uh, came from a, a similar background and absolutely bombed at Neo last year. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's very difficult. Or, or, say, Tom Dillman came from Formula Renault. Like, it, it's really difficult to say what would make a good driver. Um, and you do get people like Jev who... Okay, it took him three seasons to get up to speed, but he's he's an XF one, off cut or Buemi, who took zero seasons to to be extraordinarily dominant. Um, so yeah, I'd, uh, will teams stop taking risks on big names? I mean, probably not. If Hamilton does decide, he he had a spin in the Mercedes EQ. Um, if if he suddenly decided he wanted a more relaxed race program and came to Formula E, you can bet people would be scrambling. Um, I don't think anyone can afford him, but that's a separate issue. Uh, 
I, I think there's so many things to Formula E because you look at someone like Paffitt and Van Dorn. Paffitt just won DTM with the team that he's in now, literally exactly the same team, the exact same people. Um, they celebrated his DTM win with him and then came to Valencia. Um, they're HWA, hugely respected uh, team for, for running customer cars. They're running a customer car in Formula E. It's taken them a while to get their heads around it. Um, you know, uh, Stoffel van Dorn, very highly respected, um, particularly was extraordinarily impressive in the last spec series he was in. Uh, he won GP2 by over 150 points to the second place um, uh, racer. And that was even with one race being cancelled. Uh, so that's um, really quite extraordinary. Um, like there's a bigger margin than, say, Lewis Hamilton. Um and he looked just as impressive as Lewis in there. Uh, but he struggled because the team know perfectly well that they're still finding their feet. Um, they're still getting their heads around the powertrain. They're still getting their heads around the setup. They're still getting their heads around the race weekend. They're still, um, or the race day. Uh, you don't get a whole weekend. Um, and and when you look at, uh, say, like, so we know Lucas Degrassi is fast. But he looked like an absolute ass a lot of the start of last season uh, because his car kept failing in comedic ways it like things were going wrong at Audi um you know st- stuff kept just like going minorly wrong but in a way that that looks it it has to be major in Formula E because there's so little time and everything has to be so precise um you know I, th- I think I think it's very hard to say when it's a driver and when it's a team and when it's a set of stacked circumstances in Formula E. And and certainly I don't I don't think there's any particular background that you can point to and say, like, those drivers are really good value and always succeed in Formula E. Those drivers might be more expensive and won't like I, I think it's. Uh, I think certainly driver attitude is a big thing, but I don't think that that's lacking in, say, Massa. He really wants to win and he's very highly motivated. Um, uh, he's very interested in Formula E. He's very comfy in the team. So uh, I, don't, I don't think he's um, sort of losing out in that respect. Um, but... Uh, whereas you could say, like, Andre Lotterer, when he first came in, was kind of taking the piss a bit. Mm. He had a really shocking attitude for his first three races, and then he embarrassed himself so badly in Marrakesh that he got in the simulator for a week um, so that he could stop making a fool of himself, basically, at Formula E, and then Santiago happened. Um, So it's a question of uh, commitment as much as talent, then? Yeah, I think so. But I, I mean, there's because they all have like second jobs in WEC and Brazilian stock cars and whatever. I don't, I don't know. I, I think, I think what makes a driver good at Formula E, or, or some of them don't. So if you look at say like Evans, Formula E is his only race series, and I'm I'm sure it does help him that he concentrates on that. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's. it's it would be impossible, I think, to pin down the qualities that mean somebody will succeed in Formula E at, the, at this stage. Mm. 
Okay, I've just got on my script here, tires and filth. So um, mm. I, th- I I think I'm just going to let you talk about the Formula E tyre and why it's different from a road tyre and what's particularly special about it, Hazel. Um, okay, so uh, Formula E tyres are road tyres. I think technically you can actually buy the Formula E tyre from Michelin. Um it's uh, a ridged tyre, it's a standard rim, uh, same as you could get on a road, uh, a road car, um, and it, it's got a tread to it, so it doesn't look like normal racing tyres uh, are great big chonky boys, um, which are like about the width of, I don't know, easily my shoulders, um, and they're they're perfectly smooth. Uh, they're very, very soft compounds. They work by um, moving as uh, a single kind of like almost semi-liquid thing. So when it goes around a corner, the tyre achieves grip by literally sort of like shifting a little bit. Uh, like um, if you push your fingers together, like your your the pad of your thumb and your first finger together and then kind of move them away from each other um, or like move them against each other and you see how like the flesh of the the pad of your finger moves. That's sort of what slick tyres do. Um, Formula E tyres are rich, so they don't really do that. They sort of go more like a a hairbrush hitting the track. Um, Everything moves hopefully in synchronicity, uh, but uh, as... Uh, each segment of the ridging um, hits the uh, track at a different a different point, or it, it all hits in sequence. Um, and as a consequence, they, um, especially because they are they are a relatively hard road compound, um, they've actually got a very small operating window. And um, this year, that that. Uh, operating window is even smaller so the operating window in terms of tires um is uh the temperature of the tire so the way that the rubber is behaving obviously when the rubber's hot it moves more it gets a, a more fluid and more elastic um and uh it's to do with how knackered it is basically um so similar to journalists if we overheat and we had to like i don't know run over a bridge or something um and then we get all wonky and we're not much use and like suddenly we have to lie down for a bit and like the typing slows down, transcription gets a bit weird, that sort of thing. Um, and the the tyres have like a not dissimilar problem, um, especially because in Formula E. So with slick tyres in, say, Formula 1 or WEC, uh, they use tyre blankets to warm up the tyres to make, make them hot. Hmm. Um, to make sure that they start in the right operating window. In Formula E, you have to warm them up um, on the bumpy road or concrete surface um the like because formula e just races on whatever's there um there's no resurfacing like with with f1 in baku say um or with with f1 street circuits um and so it just has to hit it kind of try and heat up by under braking and then try and not go too far under more braking um so getting into the quite narrow operating window, which I think is is sort of like there's about a ten degrees uh, where where they're kind of good, but which which sounds like a really big window, 
um, and and the sort of optimal one is much smaller than that. Um, but actually, ten degrees, like you, I mean, you have to think about a race like Santiago, where in the pit lane it was over sixty centigrade. So, um, you know, you're you're reaching a point where you could cook an egg on the tire anyway. Um, uh, so you're going to shoot through a ten degree window really very fast. Um, at which point, uh, all of the ridges of the tire stop operating totally in sequence and and perfectly and start behaving a bit more like some kind of like weird undersea slug. You know those ones that have like little lots and lots of spines as they kind of like crawl across oh. the seafloor and it's all it's oh, all a yeah. bit like tentacular. Um, so I it, mean, I, I, it all actually, starts doing I, that. I, I, I would love to do a nature podcast called A Load of Mollusks, where we talk about a different one of these every week. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so so it all starts doing that. Um, and especially then the, the tread sort of like spread or can spread under lateral G-forces, um, which is when they suddenly turn into basically like shovels. So a, a spread piece of tread can then clamp down and pick up a dirty great chunk of tarmac as we saw in Santiago um, as we have seen again uh, in Sanya uh, where Formula E cars are literally digging up the road uh, because the the tyres <coughs> are, are, are grabbing it under lateral G and, and throwing it um, uh, which is quite interesting but also <coughs> sorry um, but also in Formula E you have the problem of the tracks are often very dirty um, so sometimes they're just dirty because of dirt, like in Hong Kong. It's just, it's a dirty road. It's used by heavy goods vehicles um, uh, coming down to the harbour because it's on the harbour front. Um, a similar problem in Brooklyn at Red Hook. Um, uh, you know, roads just get dirty because of dirt uh, and and because uh, of, of regular traffic driving over them. Um, and... Uh, then there's also places like Punta del Este or Sanya, uh, where we've seen where you just can't stop the sand blowing in from the sea. Um, sand has, uh, if you've ever run round a corner on some fairly polished concrete, anywhere near a beach or where when it's high summer and there's quite a lot of dust around, and suddenly found yourself going a bit sideways and like hitting a wall or like uh, skidding. Um, in plimsolls then that's basically the same thing that happens with sand on a Formula E track and once you've got the tyres also kind of like starting to go a bit uh, prog um, then you get um, huge amounts of slipping um, and you get sort of like very very strange grip especially around something like a hairpin Um, so we we saw a little bit of this in Sanya around the um, uh, attacks sorry Alexander Sims, uh, yes. the way he went out, yeah, 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 and and also um, Lucas Degrassi missing the attack mode activation zone a couple of times, mm. um, which was hilarious. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, you 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 get that happening, um, and you also get, uh, I mean, yeah, the 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 cars just become quite uncontrollable, which especially because Formula E cars. Uh, so in a Formula One race, the car gets progressively lighter and as your tyres fall away, you try and push them less hard. So your the times when you're going to put the most pressure on the throttle, unless you've been saving tyres 
um, specifically to do this later um, are when you've just got fresh tyres and probably at the start of the race. Um, so again, on fresh tyres both times um, and the second time that you push fairly hard uh, is going to be um, when you, you've got less fuel left so the car is much lighter. Formula E cars don't get lighter. Uh, the battery doesn't get any lighter as the energy in it uh, decreases. Um, it does get much hotter, uh, which puts different um, strains on the system and, and even on the, the rear tyres to some extent themselves um, via the regeneration system. Um, and uh, you have the unique situation in Formula E where because they do the whole race on a single set of tyres and you've got attack mode and fan boost only activates in the second half of the race um or, or sort of midway into the race um you have this situation where you could potentially be going 50 kilowatts higher as a maximum output on dog-eared tires um that are well outside the the temperature operating window which is why you suddenly see sort of like drivers doing quite weird risky things so you have to time things like attack mode or fan boost activation to having cooled the tires to where you need them to be uh, to having saved sufficient amounts of them that you're not just utterly wasting it um uh in or in order to leverage all that which i i, I think is a I really hate it when most sport commentary just talks about tyres, but I think it's actually a genuinely interesting and strategic um, element of this year that, that I, yeah, I just, I, I just wanted mm. to talk about that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, thank you for doing that. Um, I heard some scribbling from on the script. Peter, you've got some questions about tyres? Um, I don't actually know. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> no, I, I, I just, um, it, it, you know, um, having been, having been a, listener to Jimmy Young and Jeremy Vine on Radio 2, when you hear scribbling in the background, you think, ah, he's going to ask a question in a minute. So, uh, I, I okay, just, no, no, very astute, okay. very astute, but um, no, I, I don't have any more questions. I'm all right, all right. Well, th- thank thank you so much, because uh, Formula tyres are something that never get explained on the TV commentary, so that was a real insight. Thanks, thanks for, thank you yeah. for that. Yeah, um, thank you for that, because it well, that is true. They tend to, because there is no dramatic tyre change, pit stops and things, they tend to sort of gloss over that, don't they? Um, the final topic I wanted to discuss today was something brought up to me by a chap who, or, well, a person who goes by the name Faceless Photographer, uh, who wrote to me on Twitter and said, how, um, and, and says what people really want to see from Formula E is sports entertainment. And we then both went uh, back to our nostalgic memories of WWE and watching it in the 90s as kids. Uh, and uh, people like Macho Man, Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan and all, 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 of, the, all of the greats of, you know, that kind of crossover between sport and acting. Um, and we had a bit of that with the... Um, drummed up controversy on Formula E's Instagram of Andre Lotterer not answering Sam Bird's uh, voicemails and text messages. And <laughs> I, I, I mean, um, it seemed to me like a kind of KSI Logan Paul um, Instagram influencer um, um, uh, fake rivalry. But I wonder, um, are these kinds of story arcs where we generate rivalries, where we... Um, 
you know, dig into the characters and even create personas and, you know, turn people into heels, um, which for people who don't watch wrestling means bad guys. Um, is, is this is this part of how we generate more interest in Formula E or is it hampering us making Formula E into a seriously, you know, considered sport alongside Formula One? Uh, let's start with Pete. What's your opinion? Hi. Um, yeah, my opinion, really my opinion on that. I did see this uh, just before the podcast actually and have a quick look at what they were, they were posting about. I didn't really read too much uh, dramatic intent in in his statement i feel almost like uh you know a bird has his contact details he sent him some messages to clear the air lotra didn't feel much like responding um and then they shook hands actually when they saw each other in person so i i think maybe a bit of a storm in a teacup kind of event they, i think they were both gentlemanly enough to you know not necessarily forgive but at least to sort of uh, say okay you have your point of view i have mine let's just get on with it um but i don't think having story arcs uh you know whether they're sort of manufactured by press wanting to create them or whether they're actually a genuine kind of incident like the Boemi one you were talking about earlier where he's going around questioning everybody um i don't think that kind of thing takes any seriousness away from the sport it it you know uh, without over analyzing it really um a lot of sports and a lot of uh, racing in particular have been made more interesting by a key rivalry or a bit of a backhanded dig here and there that they've responded to separately and never really spoken to each other so it all gets blown out of proportion i think that all all racing especially i mean all sports but all racing especially where temperatures are high tempers are high uh, the stakes are very are very high um is a perfect breeding ground for this this type of thing and i certainly i i think it'll happen again in the future for sure whether it happens naturally or whether there's the odd little twisted story here or there um but i don't think it can it can do any harm at all hmm. hazel um so i i i thought the andre thing was uh i thought he was quite out of line to say it um i i suspect he doesn't care Andre's got um quite a lot like so I I want to say firstly that I like I respect and like all of the Formula E drivers um but Andre does have an attitude and he plays up to it a little bit so he does got a bit of a like being the big kind of like slightly cool guy like he won't take any crap and whatever he reminds uh, me a bit of kind of John Cleland in the nineties touring cars, you know, almost. I mean, I think for sure he's got sort of a yeah. He 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 does have this like persona, I guess. He's obviously also quite dorky and funny. Like he he plays around with Jeb a lot, but but he does have this sort of somewhat self protective kind of distancing bit too cool for for whatever it is like um and and to some extent a bit of a like bad boy kind of attempted vibe i think there's lots of reasons for that um but i i i don't know this one felt really off um so sam is a really nice guy um i am a little bit biased towards sam he's he's one of my favorites and he's been in the series a long time 
Um, so I would admit that as a, as, as a journalistic bias. But also I think if you compare the way that Sam reacted after the incident in Paris where Andre Shaw won one of the wheels off his car last year, which was really dangerous um, and was 100% Andre's fault, um, Sam wouldn't even say Andre's name um, to discuss the incident in the press conference after the race. He just kept saying the, the driver. Um, and that wasn't because he was so angry he couldn't say Andre's name. It was because he considered it. He he would only discuss it in terms of an incident where the rules needed to be looked at. Not in terms of something where he was cross at an individual. Um, yeah. And, um, and he about, was really respectful sorry. afterwards and, and like wouldn't talk about the incident afterwards, uh, except he'd, he'd just be like, that's all behind us. Whereas this felt like weird, like to, to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, he called me and took that. I mean, I can even imagine exactly the way Andre said it. Um, and yeah, I mean, Andre has a lot of pride. He wanted that win. He didn't get it. Uh, Sam walked away with the championship lead still you can see kind of like why tensions were high I actually didn't think Sam should have been penalized for it because I, I thought it was a racing incident um, and I feel like the whole the whole thing was a bit of a mess on Tachita's part I don't think Tachita should have humored <laughs> Andre by going for a harsher penalty um, and bringing tweets to the stewards and all kinds of weird stuff like I, I, I think Everyone was having a trying day. It was very cold. It was very wet. Everyone was, tensions were high. There was this paranoid atmosphere in the paddock. And and I think all of that should have been something that the team diffused him from. I think there's a parallel issue, though, which is that um, Bird did exactly the same thing at the same corner to Roland. And although that was kind of a perfect storm of things which put put Roland out the race and it wasn't Sam's fault by any measure... You know, again, there is this kind of thing among Formula E veterans that rubbing is racing. And I think newcomers to Formula E don't really understand that. I'm sure Andre gives as good as he gets. And in fact, he's been the progenitor of incidents before. But it felt it felt to me like in in terms of racing incidents, it was maybe 60-40 Sam. I don't know. Mm. I mean, I, I thought it was fine he got a penalty, I think... I, to me, it would also have been fine if he didn't. Um, I, th- I think it was one of those where it's absolutely down to the stewards to call, and that's why they exist. Um, because, you know, a, a lot of the rest of the time. So, say it's the kind of penalty uh, where you leave your car in the wrong state, like you don't put the steering back up, wheel back in or something, um, or it's, it's not securely turn off then it's like well there's an immediate penalty for that and it's very clear and it's it, that's just straight up rule breach whereas the stewards exist for deciding exactly this kind of thing um to get on the the narrative thing so i think if you look at something like drive to survive the formula one series um that's come out on netflix they clearly tried to build narratives rivalries to pick out threats and that's something that you have to do as journalists. It's something that you have to do to to create a coherent narrative around a season, to look at something that's interesting, to look at an interesting comparison, or just like to tease something exciting out. Um, but I mean, Formula E had two seasons, well, three seasons really, 
of uh, Buemi versus Degrassi. Um, it was a big old slanging match. Uh, say the season three press conference before the Montreal, um <coughs> sorry, finale. Uh, was really acid. It was incredibly arctic between them. They they really, well, whilst they do respect each other, and they certainly can speak to each other at that point, they were extremely not friends. Um, and, uh, you know, were, were actively antagonising each other. Comparatively, uh, the title fight last year went went down to Sam and Jeb, and like you know, they had a hug because they both qualified really craply um, <coughs> for the race that decided it. Um, so it's, I, I think there's a lot of different stories you can tell in motorsport. I think it doesn't hurt Formula E to have um, big coherent. Uh, rivalry narratives that you can get on board with it's something uh, you know I, I did a, a thread of tweets where I was like it probably helps to pick a favorite when you watch your first race um, because then you can follow their specific narrative even if you can't follow absolutely everything that's going on across the board because um, too much <sighs> stuff happens so yeah it, it, it helps to give a coherent thread that's easy to follow it's easy to dip in and out of and and it's something that you know big rivalries are something that, as you say, are are totally traditional in motorsport. I think when you get down to something like um, say the Rosberg Hamilton rivalry in Formula One, which was totally real, um, you know they loathed each other towards the end, and it was this very paranoid thing in the garage. And because they'd been teenage best friends, there was an obvious narrative there. There was all of you know. Lots of lots of um, things to to tease out there, and so I see why it was totally appealing. But it was also actually quite dull as the dominant narrative for years of Formula One, uh, and so I think you you kind of you have to be careful to not define the sport by a few rivalries, mm. um, but by the passion that drives those rivalries, that drives those conflicts, and and sort of pick out those elements to, to look at the real skill, to look at why the drivers are so close, why they get so so passionate about things. And, and things like, particularly in Formula E, I mean, like Formula One, you can just avoid another driver if you don't want to see them, even if they're in your own team. You can eat separately. You can, you can never leave your bit of the motorhome, you know. Um, but Formula E, everyone eats in the same tent. So... <laughs> It doesn't matter what team you're on. I mean, not the the team and crew are, are separate from media, but that's the only separation. Yeah, and cl- closing thoughts. Um, how good actually is the food in Formula E's catering tent? Oh, we so like I won't lie, it's been proper dodgy for a couple of seasons. Uh, like season three was better, and then there was sort of nadir in season four. Um, particularly Rome was pretty awful, uh, but God. I, they've got new caterers or something. It's really good this season, like incredible. Like I, I honestly, um, uh, it feels sort of like slightly outrageous that we get given it. Well, um, that that is the kind of insight you can't pay for, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so thank you so much, uh, Hazel Southwell, for coming on, and Peter Greaves as ever. Thank you so much. Um, and by the way, this is the. 
e-talking podcast from eMotion. Uh, I'm Stuart Garlic, and you can find this on um, hopefully all your favourite podcast networks. Uh, do please subscribe to us on YouTube or whatever you choose to subscribe to us on. And um, thank you. Good night. Goodbye.